Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarians Corner for Greener Grass. All right, hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and co-host Julio. Julio, uh, I feel like it's been a while since we had a listener request. I think Duplex kind of uh, cured us of <laughs> taking requests for a while. That's right, you mentioned that in our last episode. It was our first listener request since Duplex, and... I am not too sure that we're going to be taking listener requests anymore. <laughs> we're, we're 0 for 2 here. Uh, I mean, I am all for broadening our horizons. Lord knows I wouldn't have watched Greener Grass without somebody nudging me in that direction. That said, and without getting too much into real talk, I don't know that I would have finished Greener Grass <laughs> if somebody hadn't made me uh, commit to finishing it and judging from your tweets i think it's the same on your end yes it's um at an hour and 40 minutes it's about an hour too long to quote <laughs> liz lemon uh we are here today to discuss last year's dark comedy greener grass written and directed by and starring uh jocelyn de boer and dawn lubey luby uh, this is our first foray into their work, so do apologize if we're butchering the pronunciations of those names. I think it's our first foray in almost everybody's work in this movie. Uh, yeah, there were two people I recognized, three, as a matter of fact, and they'll get their, their propers when they come up. But yeah, a lot of uh, debuts happening here. Yeah, can't wait to talk about think... the, the Matt Damon cameo. <laughs> yeah, I, I said de- a lot of debuts, all debuts. There's, uh, to my knowledge, none no one in this movie has been on anything that we've discussed. I've plugged Kimmy Schmidt a lot, so Lauren Adams has come up on the show, but she's not been proper in Contrarians canon. So, again, we are the Contrarians. If this is your first time listening to us, we do appreciate it. If you're a returning listener or the person that requested this episode... Um, <laughs> Enjoy it because you're banned now. That's that's the rule. <laughs> if you're a returning listener, thank you. Give us a moment here while we explain what we do to our uh, potential contrarians virgins here. Uh, here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine as we say, take a movie that is highly rated on the old RT. Uh, a lot of times, well, we aim for about 90% and above, and a lot of times those are referred to as certified fresh. And what we'll do is we'll discuss that movie and make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs. And then on the other side of the coin... We find a movie that is typically 30% and below, uh, lowly green splotch known as Rotten, 
and make a case for the positive merit in it. That all comes in the first portion of the podcast, which we title Contrarian's Corner. And then Julio, if people want to know how we really feel about the movie, they have to hang around to the second half. Unless it's greener grass, in which case we start already talking about real feelings right off the bat. But yes, (laughs) generally, the second half of the show... Real talk, that's when we tell you how we really feel. Sometimes it matches what we did in Contrarian's Corner. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Uh, And generally, we don't know how the other one felt. In this case, like I said, via tweets and text messages, uh, I I think I got a pretty good idea of how Alex feels. I don't know about... Mm -hmm. I don't think I've, I've, I've exposed all my cards to you, Alex. I might surprise you. We'll see. Yeah, I mean... I, like I said, we just had a very brief exchange, and there's some things in here that are definitely worth uh, that merit discussion. So we'll see how it goes. So Julio, bring us up to speed as we're here today to tackle uh, Greener Grass, which I believe stands at 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. So kind of dips a bit lower than what we typically shoot for here. But when the Contrarians Faithful, the Contrarians Nation, reach out to us and say, hey, I think you guys should do this movie – we do like to work those in because we always like to take uh, listener feedback requests, whatnot. So who sent this movie our way? So our, our friend, longtime listener, Patrick Sherwood, he sent a, a message via Facebook uh, Messenger a while ago. And he's like, have you guys heard of greener grass? And I kind of get the feeling that he should have known that I would have said that I was going to say no, because I would imagine the answer to that question 99% of the time is no. Uh, then again, it does have a little over 60 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So, Patrick, we did our due diligence. I went through the through the quotes. I pulled three fresh ones and three rotten ones. Uh, we're going to read the fresh ones right here before Contrarian's Corner. Starting with Carrie Ann Posse from Orca Sound, who says, Through our world has become a rather strange place. It is in no way as bizarro as directors Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Luby short film Greener Grass. Which, okay, it's a movie that's short, but it's not a short film. No. Unless they watch just the opening before the title Well, this card. is <laughs> this is actually based off a short film of the same name that the, the two ladies made. Well, damn. Mm-hmm. That's, you've, you've gone deep on research here. Uh, I try to do my bit for every movie. It's <laughs> not like Halloween where I have all this shit memorized in my head. Sometimes I have to do some research on it. Well... Then and now I feel misled by Rotten Tomatoes because it just put in a quote that's clearly about the short film, not about the movie. I wonder if the lady thinks now that uh, if if Carrie, I wonder if Carrie Ann Posse feels the same way after watching the the full hour and forty minutes of uh, of bizarro uh, filmmaking, as she called it. Um, next, Ruben Rosario from Hudak on Hollywood says, it's clear Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Luby, who cut their teeth doing improv before making movies, have the chops to sustain this high-wire act because most of the gags land. Um, mm. Improvisers. I, I'm not going to say they're the bane of this podcast because they're not. <laughs> but they're, but we do like taking, uh, taking shots at them from time to time. This, this shall come up again. Actually, it will come up again uh, right away because the next quote from Andy Crump from Pace Magazine, says, Greener Grass is a yes-and movie. 90 minutes of thoroughly bizarre premises no one questions or box at, but instead dive into with absurdist gusto. Uh, it's a yes-and movie, which I think it's a fantastic description. Uh, but the problem is, what if you don't want to watch a yes-and movie? 
it's just adult swim shit that lasts an hour and 40 minutes. That's the, it's the type of comedy that you're in for with this. And that works for a select few, but not a general overarching all. Uh, I couldn't really find what the budget was for this, but the box office was a bit under 70,000. Uh, that's not to say this thing wasn't released in every theater across the country. <laughs> Had a limited release in October of last year, which quite literally, it was a different world at that point in time. It uh, it looks like it had been done for a while, though, because it premiered at Sundance in January of 2019. Yeah, it looks like they recorded this, re- recorded, filmed this in 2018. You know, I say it was a different world, and this movie certainly takes place in a different world. Is the city or town or suburb, this like township they live in, is it ever directly named? If they, if it was, I didn't catch it. It's uh, Improv USA. Uh, Carrot Tops the Mayor. Uh, <laughs> yes. The production company for the movie was IFC Midnight. So it's like a gimmick for a gimmick. It's IFC is like that's what finances some independent movies and that's how they get released and whatnot. You know, Fox has um, Fox Searchlight and then I forget the Paramount one they have. They're more independent movies that they finance. So Paramount Classics? Yeah, it's not classics. It's the one that comes across like uh, label tape. I'm trying to remember what it is. It's at the beginning of Revolutionary Road. That's why it's stuck in my head. The independent channel is making independent movies now, I guess. So it's you know you're in for a tier below a tier right from the <laughs> beginning with the signatures of the production studios. The story begins in, yeah, just a suburb USA, mostly white. Everything's filmed kind of with a sheen on the lens of, you know, everything's kind of fuzzy around the edges. Um, it's a difficult movie to break down objectively as it's – portraying itself as a dark comedy but the subject matter behind it it's like they're trying to make some kind of message but really if you just follow the plot it's disturbing it's just about white americans never having enough and then i guess the potential gaslighting that they go through when they try to settle down and have a family yeah it's it's really serious as far as subject matter goes and and i just talked was it last episode when i was talking about little children and watching the movie for the first time and how that was uh, a serious exploration of just uh, suburbia issues. What happens when you you have everything you thought you wanted and you're still not happy? You, you have the perfect spouse, the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect children, and it still sucks. And uh, that movie took it seriously. That movie, even though it had some comedic moments, overall, it was just... People that that thought that this was a subject matter that needed to be talked about and needed to be explored. I didn't get the feeling with uh, with greener grass that anybody really cared that much, other than hey, let's poke fun of people that seem to be having a, a better lifestyle than ours. Let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine uh, that they are really suffering inside, and let's relish <laughs> that feeling. So it just felt like a very bitter point of view, just from the very beginning. Well, we're not happy, and they seem to be. So let's make fun of them. Yes, basically, <laughs> let's the, fantasize the about how miserable and and stupid they are. So our main two characters in this movie are Lisa and Jill. Again, the the ladies at the helm, Jocelyn and Dawn. Uh, just to repeat myself, written and directed by and starring. That's some stone cold narcissism right there. <laughs> Always a red flag. <laughs> it is. It's uh, M Night Shyamalan. You know, 
in in this case, I, at least they split the duties. One's the hero and one's the villain. Unlike M Night, who basically <laughs> portrayed himself as God in the later half of his cinema, uh, filmography. Yeah, and also so, unlike uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, they they still at least don't have their own production logo and and everything <laughs> that takes up ten minutes of the opening credits. They're soccer moms at their kids' soccer games, or game, excuse me. I believe it's Lisa, her son Julian, is just an absolute train wreck of a child. We see him fall down at the beginning. Uh, the, the scuttlebutt, the discussion is in reference to um, a grocery bagger that works at the, I think they call it the Eagle, the local, local grocery store, had uh, murdered a local woman. So that's the, the talk. They, and this somehow leads to... Uh, Lisa offering to give her newborn baby to Jill because she's—I guess she says she wants a baby. I, I don't know if this is supposed to be some sort of analogy for postpartum depression because you know her husband wasn't there, um, but it sets an off-putting tone right from the beginning of the movie that children are treated as like plants in this village that they live in. Yeah, did was this was this a moment this early on in the movie where you just went, oh no. <laughs> What's going on? What have we gotten ourselves into? Well, I was still kind of interested because at this point um, is when it smash cuts to the title. the And they do like the 70s title screen where no fade in anything. It's just a close up, a static shot. And then the title of the movie pops up with the production studio below it. Just the kind of the logo. It's um, very good time. And then. The score in this movie, I don't know if they had the fucking dude, Daniel uh, Lopatan, that did the score for Good Time and Uncut Gems, but it's this just synthetic, you know, synth wave soundtrack that tonally has nothing to do with the movie. Yep. So in the beginning, here in the first five minutes, I was like, okay, we might be in for uh, an interesting, spontaneous treat here, but it turned out that it just had nothing to fucking do with what we were watching. Now, how long did it take you to realize that every single person in the movie has braces? Unfortunately, I in my research, I'd found that out beforehand. It was one of the gimmicks of the movie, so I knew that going in. They make it pretty apparent here pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, that fucking title uh, title screen is just a big mouth smiling, and the braces are there. But of course, at the time, I, I thought maybe that was just the two women that had the braces. But then as soon as we mm-hmm. cut to the next scene, and I just noticed everybody has them, which is like, okay, haha, braces are funny. I, I, I really don't mm-hmm. get it. What else is there? that It doesn't really say anything about anyone, uh, especially because everybody's wearing them. So uh, I could guess at some sort of uh, symbolism so what is bad to want to have uh, straight teeth now? Is that what we're making fun of? That everybody, if they have enough money, will try to improve the way their mouth looks? It just seems so so superficial that it, I think it just reveals shallowness on the part of the person making fun of the braces, not the person that's wearing the braces. Try to look cool and you end up just looking like an asshole. <laughs> yes. Uh, more humorously to me, everyone has a golf cart. That's how everyone gets around in the, the town that they live in. That's To me, that's funnier than the braces thing because also at no point do they linger on it. It's one of the very few subtle things of the movie is how everyone drives a golf cart, uh, unlike the braces that just get gratuitous, repeated close-ups. Um, the next scene, if I remember correctly, after we see everyone driving their golf carts around is uh, looks like a local barbecue with all the children and Parents of the neighborhood. This is where one of three people I recognize show up in the movie, and Beck Bennett, obviously of Saturday Night Live uh, 
fame, infamy, depending on if you like him or not. Uh, and I mean, he he fits in this movie like you know, hand into a custom made glove, ribs and barbecue sauce, whatever analogy you want to use. Because are you familiar with him and like Kyle Mooney's work before SNL? I recognize him from SNL. I was like, this guy looks familiar in a way that's SNL familiar. So I looked him up while the movie was still going, and uh, and yeah, I saw him. Of course, I can't even remember his name now, but it's. The entire movie, I was like, ah, SNL guy. And I know Kyle Mooney just from uh, from recent SNL that I've watched. But I didn't know that they were a team. Were they like uh, the, the Farley and Spade of, of the 90s or the, the early 2000s? They wish. Uh, yeah, it was more of like the mid to late 2000s. They just, they're just they still online. They just did videos that were uh, short but very comparable to the tone of this. Just kind of weird, off-putting comedy. Uh, Kyle Mooney's got some pretty funny ones himself, but uh, definitely wasn't a surprise to see him show up here. And then our other male lead of the movie, Dennis, played by Neil Casey. And it's just a weird <laughs> off-putting... <laughs> yeah. I mean, this movie is a veritable who's that, uh, aside from a couple of... And even then, Beck Bennett, uh, what's her name, Lauren Adams, and uh, John... Milheiser, it's not like these people. It's not. We're not having a Matt Damon cameo here. We're not de- dealing with anything on that level. Cool your jets. It was just a joke. There's no Damon in this one. Um, this guy, the the other, I guess the second male lead. Uh, I actually know him from something, but I had to once again resort to IMDb to figure out where I knew him from. And he is the bad guy in the most recent Ghostbusters movie, the one that was where it was four female Ghostbusters. Uh, fighting against a male ghost. He is the male ghost, or at least the, the male bad guy. Clearly made an impression, because I, I, like, I know that guy from somewhere. And I'm I'm guessing that this is this is what happens when your uh, Ghostbusters movie bombs and doesn't get a sequel. You go to greener grass. The grass is always greener, is what he thought. I'll go do an indie movie. We'll see what happens. <laughs> he yes-anded his way into an independent movie. After after working with uh, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, and Chris Hemworth. You know, there's things to compare it to, uh, dark comedies and really off-putting shit. It's um, Tim and Eric-esque, I think, for a modern era. Uh, I know there's comedy of this ilk of previous eras, but I wouldn't really know who to attribute that to. And it just starts by these two couples kissing and just close-up shots of the kissing and really nasty sound effects and shit and then they're like oh wrong husband and they swap and it's it's not funny i'm sorry if you find this shit funny there's something a bit wrong with you or I'm or just... you probably simply share the the bitterness that the filmmakers seem to have toward this this type of people towards this type of community right uh well fuck them for being able to have a nice barbecue and cool birthday parties and have pools in their backyards and everything Fuck them all. We're going to make fun of them and how they may be unaware that they're kissing their wrong husband. Uh, it, it just feels like such an angry movie disguised as a comedy. You know what What my big moment of just realization was of what kind of movie this was? When the whole thing with the baby wasn't a throwaway joke. When I realized that it was actually going to be a, one of the running plot threads throughout the entire movie. Because they keep See, referencing the fact yes. that they that one woman gave the other one the baby and it just becomes a thing where uh, it keeps 
being brought up for different reasons. And I was like, all right, so so this is so we're gonna take this seriously. We're gonna take this completely absurd plot development and actually treat it like treat it as it as if it deserves continuity, but also not treat it like it's something that would happen in the real world anyway, because it wouldn't. It was just exactly. it's just weird. It, I just wanted to say, guys, you're not David Lynch. You can't get away with this. Yeah, it's like they're trying to mash the state with uh, David Lynch. Took the words out of my mouth. You know, Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive or something. You got to go one way or the other. You can't go either way. Uh, you can't mix them, excuse me. You have to commit to one side. You know, the state, Wet Hot American Summer, the David, David, and Michael crew. If you're going to do the baby thing, it's got to be a throwaway joke. You can't focus on it. It becomes weird, and then your movie's not strong enough to back up why that is a talking point. Right. It's an it, hour it, and 40 yeah. minutes. You can't do that with the baby joke and the other thing. David Wayne knows which side of the track he lives on, and it's not the same side of the track as David Lynch. Yes, they shall never. <laughs> they stay meet. in their they stay in their respective neighborhoods. Uh, Wayne runs into Lynch when you know the local supermarkets out of almond milk or some shit, and they just kind of brush into each other on Lynch's side of the tracks. They don't exchange words; they give each other a knowing nod, and Lynch wa- watches his car to make sure it drives down the right side of the road to, to go away. It's basically they have an understanding, but they never, you know, cross the streams to make another Ghostbusters reference here. And David Wayne knows that there is no way that David Lynch is watching at his any movies. moment. He doesn't even entertain that thought. That's how much he knows uh, where his place in the universe is. David Wayne knows at any moment Lynch could kill him with his bare hands. He knows (laughs) to stay away. Forget his bare hands. You can heal him with his mind. David Lynch is a weird guy. Wayne's like in the checkout and he's got the you know the milk, the thing he came to get. And then he reaches to get like, a, I don't know, a Dr. Pepper, like a Snickers. And he looks back and Lynch just shakes his head no at him <laughs> and g- gives him the motion like a feral cat. Just keep moving. Getting back to greener grass. Yeah, they're not pulling off either thing. I, I, I guess at one point I respect the attempt to try to mend to... Uh, things that should never be mended, but that's that's why we have the rules of uh, the laws of attraction. Excuse me. That's why magnets, you know, turn them over. They shoot outwards. That's why I'm never gonna pour beer in my cereal. I'm never gonna pour Coors Light and Cinnamon Toast Crunch. They both taste great on their own, but I'd be a fool to try to mix them. Definitely, if you tried, you wouldn't keep doing it for an hour and forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I would take one bite and say this was a mistake. <laughs> I would decide it pretty quick. Getting back to the point here, uh-oh is right. I have talked about Tim Heidecker a lot on this podcast. I've ta- I've referenced Tim and Eric's skits I like, and I, specifically Tim Heidecker who does a lot of things I find funny. There are things on Tim and Eric that do absolutely nothing for me. I don't find them funny. I find them boring. I find them being things I don't want to watch. And when I saw this kissing scene here, I was like, fuck, that's what this movie is going to be. And then I did the little bloop, bloop, like uh, the X button on my PlayStation controller to bring up the uh, display, the Chiron, to see how much time was left in the movie. <laughs> and it said an hour and 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, God, no. I, I kept doing that also, bringing up the, the runtime just with my remote. But the other thing is, I wanted to see at what point I would figure out what the story of the movie was. Why greener grass? What is okay? I I get it that that the baby is now kind of a, one of the running elements through the movie, but but what is it really about? Because you know that's that usually helps you understand when the movie is going to be over. When you figure out what the movie is about, then you figure out when you're getting closer to the end. And I never had that feeling with this movie. <laughs> I never knew nope. what was the end game. When I would be able to recognize, oh, 
this is it. We're, we're approaching the climax. Either this happens or this happens, but either way, the movie's going to be over. Uh, here, because of the way it's structured, it's just kind of a, you know, let's make fun of, of white, uh, well-to-do people in this scenario. And now let's make fun of them in this scenario. And then in this scenario. And from time to time, we'll bring up some running threads about the kids, but there's really no uh, no overarching plot, right? There's no ticking time bomb. There's not like... Uh, the the closest somebody has to it comes to a sense of urgency is woman number one wanting her baby back at some point, but it's not like that drives the story. That's just kind of a a thing that pops up from time to time. Uh, so that was kind of discouraging. Whenever I would look at the runtime and see that we still hadn't come close to even establishing uh, a serious like major plot. There's there's a thing with the with the murderer, the bagger that murders someone in the background, but that also didn't didn't uh, uh, take you anywhere. And then there's this sort of a red herring that it feels like it's a little heavier in the at the beginning of the movie, and then it kind of goes away and it comes back at the end, which is the uh, the stock the stalker cam where mm-hmm. you hear heavy breathing and kind of mumbling, and, and somebody's observing woman number one. What's her name? Because I really I don't know the name of the actress. I know it's one of the directors. I thought maybe okay, this is what's gonna be. Maybe this is under. It all, it's actually a thriller. Uh, but no, it turned out to not be that either. So, so yeah, it was just a matter of, of watching these adults uh, be really dumb and, and be made fun of in exaggerated ways without an actual story. I mean, do you can you come up with a story? Like, could you, could you like, step back and tell me what the story of this movie is? No, it's... Um... Fuck, we've done a movie on here before. I'm trying to remember what it was. That's just basically a sequence of scenes that loosely tie into one another. And there's really no thread. I mean, you could argue Pulp Fiction, but there's clearly an overarching story to that movie. But that's how the movie's presented is it's just a series of scenes that happen and are loosely tied together. That's what this movie is. But the problem is none of those scenes are good. So it doesn't really work in any capacity. And then on top of that, yeah, there's not really a story unless you're talking about this like it's some black swan repulsion type psychological thriller where this woman's going insane. But that's really not what it turns out to be. Like I used the word gaslighting earlier. That's pretty much what her surroundings do to her later in the movie. At the present of the film, she is very you know distressed. She gave up her kid and she talks to her husband about it. And she's like, are you mad at me? He's like, just ask next time is what Beck Bennett says. But he's already moved on to his new obsession, which is his pool water that has no chlorine in it. It's all, I think he says it's like oxygen filtered. So it keeps it clean without any chlorine. So like a psycho, he's just drinking pool water constantly. And their little boy, Julian, is um, an off kid, to say the least. Um, Constant uh, accidents and issues at school and kind of a nightmare of a child, everything going wrong with it. And again, at this point in the movie, I guess not really enough has been done to establish that it's supposed to be a comedy. So you're really just feeling bad for this woman. Yeah, uh, especially because the characterization of the kid is kind of all over the place because at first you feel like he is kind of a a good kid, but that doesn't live up to the standards set by this community. Uh, I mean, that's how we're introduced to him. They're they're all playing soccer, and he's just standing there, mouth open, watching everything in slow motion. This movie loves slow motion, by the way, uh, but I'm sure you notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you kind of feel bad for him, right? It's like, oh, what's well, a kid that's not 
into sports, but he's being asked, forced to play sports by his parents. And then uh, he pees himself while in the car and the mom is shocked. And you're like, oh, it's one of those kids. He's too old to be doing this. But now he's peeing. Obviously, the, the pressure of family life. And so you feel bad for him. But then he turns into a little asshole. Like after a few scenes, he's yelling at his mom and he's being pretty defiant. And then all my sympathy went out the window. And it just uh, where the movie the movie missed out on a on a pretty good uh, character that could have helped me have sympathy for something for someone uh, in the long run, right? If if we had this kid as the emotional anchor, and if nothing else, what you want is for this kid to prevail to get a happy ending. Uh, but no, because then he becomes as unbearable as everybody else. And then later on, he becomes a dog. So <laughs> that's what this movie is like. Yeah, if you're hoping for a payoff, it's not there. Uh, don't get too excited, I should say. On the other side of town, Jill and her husband, Dennis. Jill is very unhappy with her life. Her son is also kind of a wreck, not very smart, sucks at the saxophone. She gets like a, a card in the mail that has uh, Beck Bennett on it, says he's celebrating his 40th birthday. Uh, we find out throughout the movie she's pretty enamored with him. I think her her end game is trying to uh, shack up with Lisa's husband. But again, it's just long panning shots, ominous tones that really go nowhere in the movie. It leads to the news making waves throughout the neighborhood. There's a local couple that's getting divorced. And I guess this is treated like something that doesn't happen too often. But then it happens again in the movie. <laughs> so... What 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 am I missing here, Julio? What's the the socioeconomical statement that's being made by this? I guess that divorce is funny. That it's funny when a family <laughs> falls apart. That's really the, the one of the major statements in the movie. Is just that it, let's make fun of uh, the the core American unit, right? We're not just gonna make fun of of sort of the American dream. Because the average person mm-hmm. would like to live in a neighborhood like this and have the means that these people do. But also, let's just make fun of fundamentally what makes America America, which is a family, right? Parents, the kids, the community. Let's just uh, point out how funny it is when they fall apart. Because that's really uh, the, the character of the divorcee. She is there basically to constantly remind us how, uh, how happy she is now that she is divorced. And how everybody else should try it because it's because life is so much better that way. Even though honestly, it doesn't look like her life is that much different from from the rest of the community. Uh, she's just kind of, uh, I guess she doesn't have her husband around anymore. But we never see her having a good time. We never see her uh, enjoying herself. We just see her around these other miserable people. So what's the point? If if what you wanted to do was show us that 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 was that she's better off that way, the movie does a really bad job of showing it. Her daughter's name being Citronella did make me laugh. I'm not gonna lie. There's a scene at a local restaurant where the two couples, the main couples of the movie, Lisa and Nick and Jill and Dennis, are comparing their families, comparing their children, their achievements, and just constantly getting bitter and jealous towards one another for you know their perceived flaws and or uh, achievements or greater than statuses, what have you. I guess this is supposed to be the entire overtone of the movie is it's about how superficial, I know suburban life is and white people are and how obsessed they are with the perceived um, presence of uh, superiority. And Oh, I get it, Alex. The grass is always greener. <laughs> hey, there you go. Here we do get Beck Bennett his obsession with his pool water. This is one of the parts of the movie that made me laugh because the waiter comes to bring water for the table. He goes, no, I don't drink that stuff anymore. I got my own. And he gets like a jug of his pool water out. 
See, that's the thing of the subtlety versus the just domineering. Like the whole fucking thing with the baby is the entire movie. Oh, can I have my baby back? It's it's not funny. But if you do something really stupid like this pool water thing that's just really subtle and does have a payoff at the end, that's that's fine. Go for it. But I guess the the tone of this movie or the theme, I should say, not tone or the surname, it should have just been greener grass, colon, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, even within that scene, because the, the waiters, the waiters, no, the, the waiter brings their food over and he bumps into a different waiter so they both drop their food to the floor and they freak out for like five minutes and suddenly we went from having kind of kind of a subtle joke subtle gag with the pool water to this completely over the top bit where the the waiters are screaming they're freaking out and i guess the joke is that when you're working at a restaurant where where this kind of people or customers you're in such uh fear for your job that if you make a mistake, you instantly panic. And then they calm him down. They're like, Oh no, it's okay. It's okay. And they're like, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. And then they get on all fours and start eating from the floor. And it's like, what? And then like, like so many moments in this movie, the camera just holds on for too long. Like it happened all the way at the very beginning when we were seeing them kiss, when they were kissing the mm-hmm. wrong husband and then they, they swapped and they were kissing the right husband and you could see the spit and the close-ups and, the, and everything. And here's the same thing. The camera holds on them just eating from the floor, being gross. It's it just, what is it? I know we referenced Lars von Trier a lot in this, in this podcast, but every single time it is justified. And mm-hmm. it is also in this scenario where I'm not I, I didn't sign up for a Lars von Trier movie I didn't want the the nasty uh, don't look away visual language it's like this is a comedy I get it okay so they kneel down and start eating from the floor cut next scene we get the fucking point you know and this isn't a Lars von Trier movie you're not trying to say anything big just give the people what they want and move on uh, I keep trying not to blow my big analogy or comparison about this movie in Contrarian's Corner, but once I get there, people will understand. <laughs> the two respective couples, boys, that are part of a music recital. It goes poorly. Uh, Bob, who uh, is Jill and Dennis's boy, plays a saxophone and plays a, a very kind of brutal version of, uh, is it Yankee Doodle they play? And that's what they said, um, that it was, uh, that they had been rehearsing, so... Okay, so his goes, you know, kind of rocky, and then Julian goes up to play the piano, and everyone expects him to produce something great, and he just pounds on the piano for three minutes. And again, a joke, we get it, move on, please, let's keep it rolling here. We got places to be. It leads to Lisa and Nick arguing, or more or less uh, being upset with Julian, say they're going to pull him out of piano practice, and it's just not doing anything for him. I mean, this boy is just a problem child at this point. He keeps pissing himself in class and, uh, you know, soiling the beanbag chair of his classroom and wetting the bed and having accidents all around the house. He is apparently a bad influence on other kids. We're learning that he taught uh, one of the local girls the word butt, and this has offended the, the girl's mother, so he's not allowed to be around kids anymore. We see him taken to his karate class, and he can't really do shit there either. He's it sounds like he's you making know, fun of his teacher for being Asian. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a really weird portrayal he has, and I would venture to say 
that in normal circumstances, if you're really trying to say something about this type of living, you would say more about, you know, what can be done to help these kids. But instead, it's this movie's here to kind of make fun of it and show, see, these dumb white people only just worry about themselves or not even that because there are characters of color in the movie. It's just these dumb suburban folk only worry about themselves. They don't care about anything. Yeah, and talk about a missed opportunity because this is where if you were even slightly familiar with the subject of your wrath here in, in, in this movie, you would know that odds are that the parents would put that kid in therapy. But it's not mm-hmm. even mentioned. It's not even suggested by anyone in the movie that, hey, maybe this kid needs needs to go into therapy, which is what not just with what happens in real life, but also what happens in movies. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. therapy is is just a staple of this sort of a uh, community. And yet, no, because it's funnier to just, I guess, let the kid piss himself. By the way, did you uh, did you recognize the teacher, Miss Human? No, that that is like the one other actor in the movie, other than uh, SNL guy, that I knew. She is uh, uh, she's Janet from The Good Place, which I guess if you haven't seen The Good Place, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, she plays uh, an android, a robot, sort of an artificial intelligence in in that show, and she's really funny. Um, in this movie, I guess because they asked her to play a human, uh, which is oddly enough named Miss Human, it just uh, it doesn't work. She oh she's not that is great. that supposed to be the joke that her name's Miss Human? Yeah. Oh, I see. The Good Place is the show with Veronica Mars, right? Yes, and Ted Danson. Good stuff. Better than Greener Grass. Fair enough. They have a story. See that? Okay, so that's a joke for like you and people that watch The Good Place. Is her name's Human? <laughs> Hilarious. Please watch The Good Place. <laughs> <laughs> they should have just had like a little, you know, the logo pop up. What channel is it on? ABC, NBC? Uh, it's over Wednesday now, but I think it was NBC. Well, a lot of things are over now. Uh, <laughs> I guess this is like one of the closest moments to suburban housewife, like realism that we have at the karate dojo where Jill and Lisa are talking about their respective sex lives. Um, but then it just degenerates into them talking about, oh, you should read this book. And I I can't remember if this is where they talk about going to yoga together, but eventually that's what happens. Yeah. Um, did you get the feeling that, uh, do you think she was being truthful? Uh, Lisa, I guess, because Lisa's married to a guy from SNL, who I guess is the, the dreamboat of the, of the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. she says, even though they look pretty miserable, as miserable as everybody else in this movie, she goes, oh yeah, no, we, we our sex life is great. We, we have it scheduled. We have sex five times a week. And then Jill says, oh, well, we're not having sex right now. We're, it's just not happening. Did you get the feeling that that Lisa was just making it up to sound good, to, to sound cool? Because she was having sex almost every day, I guess, and twice on Sundays? Or I guess. It, it seems like all the characters in this movie just are becoming perpetual pathological liars. So I don't know. At this point, the well, no, the next scene in the movie is when I just threw in the towel. And I'm like, I'm gonna stop trying to make sense of any of this. When they move to the pool party for Beck Bennett's birthday, <laughs> yes, um, and it is funny that he's the dreamboat in the movie because he's like average looking, <laughs> and I say this as an average looking person myself. N- well, that's the thing; his physique is very unexpectedly kind of jacked. When uh, on SNL, he would always play Putin, and he would always play him with his shirt off. And like he 
has a pretty respectable physique for how unassuming he looks with his shirt on. So the, I don't know. I doubt that was really factored into any of the comedy of it. But to me personally, that that kind of made me laugh. But yeah, there's a pool party. Uh, Jill gives him a little statue of a man. It makes no sense. The characters, <laughs> I don't know, man. There's so much going on. The, the townspeople are all just doing random shit. They're talking about the swimming pool that's there. Because they had, um, they start talking about Pangea. That's when I wrote the note, what the fuck is this movie? Because they start talking about Pangea and they say, oh, maybe your you know, your property was part of Pangea. Which in a better movie would be a funny line because that just shows how stupid they are. But this was officially the part in the movie where I was just like, fuck this. Let's just get this over with. I'm, I'm done trying to make sense of it. The, the two, those two little scenarios are actually pretty good examples of... Um, of what this movie feels like when the improv is not working, right? Because it really feels like an improv scene that's dead in the water, <laughs> where where you don't know how to yes and your way out of this bullshit that, that your partner yes. just dragged you into, right? First, when, when Jill gives Nick the statue that she made, I guess, in pottery class or whatever, and I guess the joke is that clearly she made it because she has a crush on him, but the statue looks nothing like him, and the statue is holding a flute, or what looks like a flute, and he's like, I don't even play the flute. And they have this really long conversation about it, and it's not funny, and you can sense you can sense Beck Bennett just struggling to get out of this. He's, he's looking for a way out. And and the other actress, Jill, Jill's just not giving it to him. She keeps, she's committing to the bit. She keeps bringing the conversation back to the statue. And then the same thing later when there's the three women are, are admiring the pool. And I guess the joke is that they have such a big pool because they had to dig out uh, a horse skeleton from under their property. And yeah, and then that it turned out that that skeleton was really old. And that's why they that's how they get to Pangea, but also that's how they explain they're like, oh well, it was such a big hole, we might as well we already had the hole, so we turned it into a pool. I don't know, it just goes on forever. And you can sense time stretching, like seconds stretching into minutes whenever there's a pause. Yes. <laughs> and the actresses look uncomfortable and look away and they don't know how to get out of it. But these directors which is funny because the directors are the actresses. They're both in there in that scene, and they just neither could bring themselves to just say cut <laughs> let's move on let's scrap the scene it's like uh they were playing a game of chicken and to see which which of them was gonna uh yell cut first and then we because that's we what lost. bad improv is like improv troops uh, specifically bad ones if this is your first time listening to us or this if you've never heard an episode where we discuss improv good improv is hilarious yep. unfortunately good improv accounts for maybe 2% of all improv and bad improv specifically when you get like the lower 50% is I would rather watch, you know, greener grass um, <laughs> antichrist or something just to, to pass the time. Cause at least then my mind will be somewhat engaged. And here the thing with that, especially bad improv is how like encouraging they are of each other. Which is good. Positive reinforcement. Not going to hear me. Unlike this movie, I'm not going to bitch about what I perceive to be positive in other people's lives. But you just know these scenes where 
they didn't want to cut anything from it because they were all like, oh, well, no, when she said the thing about the horse, it was funny. Oh, and but, you know, when she made up the thing about the flute, that was great. Let's play off that. Now I'm Flutie McGee. And the problem is, though, the Pangea shit, you know, was scripted because they have the line where the boy goes, what's Pangea? And then the local priest is like, don't say that. We're Christian. So that was scripted in there. And it's. So that means they probably improved the script writing process, and the script was probably originally like 800 pages, fucking Lawrence of Arabia type shit we're talking about here, and they they condensed it down into an hour and 40 minutes that feels longer than uh, Cleopatra. They're like, we captured the spirit of the script. It still feels like 800 pages, but it's only an hour and 40 minutes. The- the spirit of bad improv is very much alive and well here. <laughs> so Julian, his mom goes off on him because he won't go to use the bathroom inside. Uh, he's for some reason wearing his grandpa's purple heart. And she says she's going to take it away. So he goes outside and sings happy birthday to his dad and then jumps into the pool and becomes a dog. <laughs> and it's met a lot. I'm like Chris Farley in the Hurley boy skit here. I just, yeah, I have nothing. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's pretty telling that by this point in the movie, such an out of left field development, like this child becoming a dog after he jumps in the pool. It just it sounds like it made you shrug the way that it made me shrug. I was like, oh, so now we're doing this. Okay. The problem is it's almost an hour into the movie and you've wasted my time in the first half or first hour trying to, like, convince me that there's going to be some semblance of a story told here. Not to be. Eventually, Jill is confronted by Lisa as Lisa wants to ask for her dog back. She says, I don't want to be an Indian giver. She says, you can't say that. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to be a Native American giver. <laughs> Wait, but... not her dog back. <laughs> her baby back. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I was checked out by this They're point. All the my notes. I'm sorry. And she says, no, you can't. And this all, of course, leads to what follows uh, I guess Jill wants more attention because Lisa's getting attention because her son is a dog now and <laughs> the dog behaves well. And Beck Bennett's like really fall in love with the, the dog. It's basically everything he's wanted from his son now. He can play catch and, you know, he, he's faster than all the other kids. In a desperate act, Jill places a soccer ball under her summer dress to give the impression that she's pregnant and everyone just falls for it. You peaked with the dog. So at this point... F- who cares, right? It's it's no it's not funny because it's not surprising, and it's not surprising because again, you just had a kid turn into a dog a, a couple scenes ago. So when nothing matters, when when no matter what happens, characters just kind of taken in stride and keep going, then nothing matters. It just there's no uh, there's no tension. There's not me wondering if they're ever going to figure out that she's not pregnant. That instead she's holding a, a soccer ball under her shirt. It's just like oh well, again, this is what we're doing now. So, so I guess in a way they they ruined the story. They took away the tension from the story for the sake of a gag that only works if you're looking at it on its own. Uh, but if you're looking at it as one more event in a series of of things that have been happening in the movie, it just doesn't matter, right? If you if I was watching a Saturday Night Live skit and the joke was that this lady grabs a soccer ball and pretends that she's pregnant and everybody falls for it, okay, well that's as a unit that works, but as as a link in a chain of events in a movie, which is what a movie is, then it doesn't. 
and, and you kind of hit a point I was going to make in the second half already on there. If this was an SNL skit, it would be at most, you know, I think the John Mulaney skits that are really extravagant go maybe 12 minutes. That's why Saturday Night Live is a sequence of unrelated sketches is because that's kind of how this style of comedy works. You can't drag that into an hour and 40 minute movie where there's just one byline through it. And it's idiotic. Especially if you don't have John Mulaney. Absolutely. So the local girl that was killed, which again, we forgot about this and now we're, our attention's drawn back to it. Uh, Cheryl is her name. There's a vigil for her held in the, uh, I don't know, I guess it was her home where she lived. And this is uh, the aforementioned Lauren Adams shows up, uh, plays her sister, who, uh, Erica. And I think the pictures of Cheryl, too, if I'm not mistaken, were uh, of Lauren Adams. Uh, she plays Gretchen on Kimmy Schmidt. That's what I know her from. She's very funny on that show. Did you ever watch Kimmy Schmidt uh, cover to cover? I've only seen the first season. I've always meant to, to watch the rest. Is she in the first season? Yeah, I can't remember what happens with her character in the first season, but she's the one uh, that was in the bunker that still thought that like John Hamm didn't do anything wrong. Okay. She still like believed in him, and she's really crazy. I mean, she's really funny in that. Uh, and she's funny here. Her delivery is uh, good, and it was nice to see a familiar face. She's gone too soon. She's replaced by yeah, uh, she... some dude on stage. Because the whole thing is that she calls over a guy that had once dated his her sister. Again, this this is shit that is not needed. <laughs> it's not funny. It's watching a comedian tank because they drag this scene out for I, I I think it's four minutes, but it feels like ten. This is a one line joke. Orange County, where the girl in the class talks about I'm not I'm not sure if I'm ready to cover Romeo and Juliet uh, emotionally. You know, with my boyfriend just passing. And the guy in the back of the class goes, "You only dated for two weeks." That's this joke. <laughs> But they drag it out and it to the point where they beat it like a dog, uh, and it just loses any any chance that it had uh, any modicum of success that it had at being funny. Yeah, I, I think that the the lesson that Greener Grass teaches us is that sometimes, sometimes, yes, and is not a good idea. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, moving on, and you just go on to the next thing. And then the next thing we get is the baby shower, which makes no sense either. They're like, what are they eating that they end up throwing up? I didn't catch this. I, I didn't either because it's such a wide shot too. Like by the time that they throw up. So I wasn't paying attention to what they were eating. And then I saw them all throw up around the table. But by then it was, they were so far away that I didn't get it. Um, it's just weird. It's, it's that level of commitment to, to a gag more so than the, than them trading kids or even the, of Julian turning into a dog. The level of commitment that they give this really dumb idea of uh, of Jill pretending to be pregnant with a soccer ball, it went from I, I went from being indifferent to it to being frustrated with it, and then just actually resenting it every time they brought it up. I was like, "We're still doing this shit. It wasn't yeah. funny twenty minutes ago. <laughs> it's not getting any funnier whenever you bring it up again." And then, of course, joke was I on think- me because they, I mean, to say that they. A hundred percent, a thousand percent commit to it is is an understatement. Yeah, it's born as a soccer ball, and it. it I mean, we can just move right into that. She she gives birth to this ball. Um, they name it Twilson because they were going to name it Wilson, and they remembered that Tom Hanks had named his ball Wilson in Castaway, and they're treating it like a, a kid. Uh, and you know, 
people are there to congratulate him. As a rule, I, I, you should never reference a movie that's better than yours. And not just better. I mean, we're talking like Chinese water torture versus bluebell vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup on top. <laughs> it got me thinking about if there's ever really been something that made me like howl with laughter when it came to people treating an inanimate object like a person or someone they loved or something they loved. And so I was thinking about that earlier and in thinking about it here, two things come to mind. Uh, I mean, obviously Castaway, but that's a bit different because there's like, he's, that's his only friend and I'm going to get, that's all I'm going to talk about because I'm going to get choked up if I keep talking about Wilson. (laughs) Scrubs, where JD has that envisioning of Turk leaving his baby at the pumpkin patch and taking a pumpkin instead. So they raise a pumpkin. Do you remember that? I, I haven't seen that episode. Oh, that's the joke. They raise a pumpkin and it, you know how JD always has his daydreams. Mm-hmm. It's one that lasts like four minutes and it's just of <laughs> them. And the joke is when he comes flashes back, Turk's like, are you okay? You were gone for a while, but uh, yeah, that they, they raise a pumpkin and it becomes like valedictorian at his school and shit. And it's just so dumb. And then two, have you seen almost heroes with Matthew Perry and Chris Farley? No, that movie looked terrible just from the trailer. It's funny. Is just, it? You know, I mean, I, I know it's, it's I, his last movie, right? Farley's last movie? I believe Dirty Work was, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong. It's one of those two. Your and I's relationship with Farley is a bit different, so I could be blinded by that. But there's a joke in that movie. Uh, you know, they lead it. Um, the story of it is they inadvertently beat Lewis and Clark and, you know, mm-hmm. uh or I can't remember if they're like racing side by side with him or whatever, but the whole point is they lead a crew of men and it's just all dudes. One of their ports they stop in, uh, a localer is like, he says, you know, I, I run a brothel, I have all the finest whores in town, come on by and have your men treat themselves. And then they go there and it's all like scarecrow type things or like, um, like stuffed women. But they like we're talking, you know, drawn on smiley faces with a magic marker. They're clearly like made of straw and, you know, kind of just stuck out like a scarecrow. Uh, And all of them are like, oh, this is dumb. Uh, But there's one guy in the crew that is, you know, enamored and goes and takes one and uh, makes it his girlfriend. And and this is all happening very quickly. It's not like this movie where we drag this whole sequence out. Then a fire breaks out in one of the cabins they're staying in and the, the doll like burns up. And he takes it with him on their boat the next day, and he's, like, trying to nurse it back to health. And Matthew Perry says, you do understand she's made of straw. And he goes, I, Captain, figure that's why she burns so easy. That that was what I was thinking of, and it made me laugh instead of this movie when I was watching it. Because <laughs> I just ended up thinking about, has this joke ever been done well? So... <laughs> Something so stupid and then paying it off by showing how stupid it is. That's, you know, Norm MacDonald's always said, in his opinion, the perfect joke is where the setup and the punchline are the same. And so getting back to greener grass, getting back from where the grass was greener. <laughs> well, well, uh, actually, you made me think. Do you think that this would have worked much better if the last thing we see in the movie when it comes to Twilson is that she, because by the end of the movie, she has three kids, Right. She has Twilson, mm-hmm. she has uh, Bob, and she has Paige. So if she kind of like gets tired and she very casually puts Wilson back on the football field and kicks it away, <laughs> would that be like, funny? I can't tell anymore because the movie has messed with my mind. I think, yeah, that would at least been some kind of a payoff. Right, but, there's symmetry. Or if, 
Yeah, or if like uh, Lisa got mad and just took it and drop kicked it, you know, a la Jack Black and Anchorman. But we'll never know because they didn't do that and they just tried to treat this like it was real. And concordant with this is uh, uh, Nick Beck Bennett and just his love affair with the dog and how it's, you know, the son he never had. And this was like the one part of the movie where I had like this weird introspection of like, that's got to be a real thing. You know, some people think they want a kid, but what all they really want is a pet. <laughs> and that has to be. That, that, has that, to that be single thing. sentence is so much more interesting than anything Greener Grass has to say. Because, <laughs> you know, he seems really unhappy with this kid. But then, and, and to be fair, a dog. I mean, dogs fucking rule. So that uh, that's a big part of it. I mean, that's why they're called man's best friend, after all. And this it's portrayed in this movie. But, yeah, that is the closest I had to any train of thought trying to follow along with what the movie might have been saying after, like I said, the first uh, 40 minutes or what have you. Uh, again, we get Beck Bennett uh, obsessing with his pool water. He's begun making popsicles out of it. It has stayed subtle enough to still be funny. I laughed when he pulled the popsicle out. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it pays off. It's the only thing that pays off in the movie is the final pool gag. Jill is convinced by her friends that she needs to divorce Nick she like tells them at like a bowling alley. They're at a, one of the kids' birthday parties or some shit. the The movie is degrading at this point. It's starting to kind of fall apart. I think <laughs> that's supposed to. I, I mean, from my viewing point of view, but also the movie itself, the characters are becoming just such bad people. And you know, they convince her it would be fashionable to get into a divorce from her husband. So she tells Nick, and you know, says she's going to take the kid and. Uh, they tell Julian the dog and like Beck Bennett's freaking out the whole time while this is going on. It, this is where the pool gag pays off. Cause like Beck Bennett, it just shows him in the pool swimming and just drinking as he goes along. <laughs> I guess this is how he's coping with it. And he's so miserable that that reveal I think was the hardest I laughed in the whole movie. I laughed at the fact that when she goes to tell him that she wants a divorce, there's two things. One is that she comes up to him and you know, he's trying to, to have the show the dog how to bowl, and so he's there with the dog, and she's like, she tells Julian, "I need to talk to your father." <laughs> so the dog goes away. Yeah. It's so fucking dumb, but I guess by then the movie had beaten me into submission, where I would just grasp at anything that was even mildly funny, and just the fact that, that she just addressed this dog like a kid, uh, and then. Then she breaks up with him, and he's freaking out, and he's trying to hug her, and she says, "No, no, married people hug." <laughs> It's just so fucking dumb. Oh, this is where we get another sketch comedy scene. Jill and Dennis and her family trying to get their picture taken. And this was the uh, other person in the movie I recognized, um, John Milheiser, who was on Saturday Night Live for maybe two seasons. Make sure um, he kept uh, Beck Bennett's phone number. So they're getting their photo taken, and it just becomes – I can't decide if this falls on the actual actors here, or this feels like it was something that was screenwritten uh, by an improv troupe that was just shouting out ideas through it. And they're like, oh, yeah, and then they need a chair, and the photographer doesn't have one, so the his receptionist is in a wheelchair, and he has to take her off the wheelchair. And uh, you know they use the wheelchair as the seat. Y you may find this surprising, Julio, but it goes on forever. But it also – doesn't amount to anything it it no it comes upon us for no reason because this is not set up at all and it leaves us with no consequence because it's not like you even see this photograph that was taken i think i guess you could say that about most 
sequences in this movie. But this one in particular sticks out like a sore thumb because, well, one, I don't know if you saw the, the picture I posted, but it's the... It's the screenshot that shows up on Hulu when you're going to watch the movie. <laughs> it's them posing for that photograph. Yes. <laughs> Making you think that that's a big part of the story. Uh, two, like you said, it goes on forever. In uh, three, it's particularly nasty. I, I think that this sort of awkward comedy requires a very specific set of skills. The, the likes of... Uh, the likes that... Ben Stiller has, right? Where you can do something that's mean or re- or have something mean be done to you and still have it be funny. Uh, yeah. To me, the idea of making this woman that's on a wheelchair get off the wheelchair and just sit on the floor so that they can use the wheelchair to get their picture taken, that was more mean-spirited than funny. So I was like, all right, well, can we just get through it? But they kept dragging it. <laughs> so it, it was not it's not cool. Yeah, at this point, it's basically it, it becomes Freddy got fingered at this point of just these individual scenes that are just getting nastier and nastier as they go along. Uh, the actress in the wheelchair, uh, Santina Muha, I just looked her up because I found that to be more fascinating than what I was doing watching the movie. She was in that movie with Joaquin Phoenix that I still really want to see. Don't worry, Joker. you won't get far on foot. The oh. fuck off. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, the, but yeah, I want to watch it too. The movie where Jonah Hill has long hair and a beard. That If that's not enough to get you signed up. Bringing this home, Jill loses everything. Uh, she goes to get her hair done, but she leaves uh, Julian, the, the dog, at home. And Beck Bennett comes home to find him there. And they feel it's best if he takes the dog because she can't take care of him is what they say. And oh, he comes goes, back to the house to get some yeah. pool water. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that was the reason he's like, I'm low on pool water. It leads to them, him finding Julian the dog and thinking that, you know, he's not in safe hands. I have Jill written down. It's actually Lisa, the one that loses everything. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I've, got, I've had them backwards the whole fucking movie. My apologies. So wait. So who's the who has a crush? Who's married to Beg Bennett? Uh, Jill. Okay. Okay. Yes. Jill is the brunette and Lisa is the blonde. So Jill loses everything. She begins going crazy. She tries one last play to get Madison back and it does not work out. Uh, she goes back home and then like Julio, I don't know if I've ever been more ready for a movie to be over in this run <laughs> of this podcast. And the at this point, 150 movies that we've covered then she comes home and it's they come back around to that stalker character yep. that's been doing like the Black Christmas like voiceovers throughout the movie, and then we find out it's uh, little Helen is the character's name, who's now dressed up like Jill, and it, it's just I, it's you can sense the desperation coming from the filmmaker's side. But to me, that was just a, a basically them staring at an unfinished screenplay and going, where the hell do we go from here? And I understand because they wasted all this time not building up a story. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm like, where do we go now? Oh, what if the the stalker this this presence that we had earlier in the movie shows up here for no reason? She's she decides to take over uh, Jill's life and and it's going to be funny because it's going to be this woman that is the complete opposite of Jill. She is bigger than Jill. She's louder than Jill. And she's, she's I guess, messy because she's been cooking and she has, like, uh, food all over her. I, I don't know. Isn't that funny, guys? 
because it's just gonna be no. yelling for like five minutes. It felt like like them giving up. It's like here goes nothing. <laughs> and we had had her earlier in the movie. She was the replacement yoga instructor for the woman who was killed. Did you could you tell that that was that that was the the stalker when when she showed up uh, in the yoga class? Yeah. No, not really. Did they had she been seen in the movie up until that point? I knew she was obviously someone bad because that was the way they dressed her and portrayed her. Yeah, no, no, but I, I I thought that she might be just because she looks so unlike anybody else in the movie. Yeah, um, and uh, in you know this movie is just so obvious about its targets that I, I felt like oh if she is being portrayed as being an outsider, then she's probably that that stalker camp person that we've been seeing from time to time. It would only make sense. So then, when she showed up in in the, I mean, by the time she shows up in Jill's house, it, the movie had worn me out to where nothing would have surprised me. I mean, fucking Darth Vader could have shown up in her kitchen. I would have been like, "All right, this, yeah. this is it." They yes ended Darth Vader into <laughs> into this movie. Detective Michael Scarn, boom. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> at, at one point, Jill puts her hand in her pocket, and uh, and the stalker goes, "Do you have a gun <laughs> in there?" <laughs> What did Michael tell you? (laughs) So she chases her out of her own home. She's like, get out of here. I live here. And it's just, it goes on forever. There's enough camera shots in here to give Kevin Dunn a raging boner. Like the changes, you know what I mean? The the switches between all the camera angles and shit. It's fucking awful. Jill gets run out of her home. She takes her golf cart and she actually drives outside of the city limits. She's somewhere in the country. There's some cows grazing to her right. And then as if the movie hadn't done enough to really just piss me off, there's like this close-up scene of her ripping her braces off with needle nose pliers. And as someone who had had braces in the past and would know what that felt like, this like made me mad. I'm like, fuck you. We already went on this journey and now I have to watch this saw shit. No, no. Yeah. It, it goes, it goes too far. And, uh, and it's the picture of I, I didn't need the close up of the bloody teeth, you know. I, no. I I know that it's especially this late into the movie to ask the filmmakers for restraint is just a fool's errand. But still, we get it, right? We see the close up. She's for some reason she's looking at the fucking cows, which I, I whatever. But then we get the close up on her teeth. We see the pliers. We see we see her hook the pliers underneath the first wire. Okay, that's all you need. That's all you need. You don't need to show us every single thing, especially when the follow-up is something that's not funny. I I don't know who finds it funny to see bloody teeth uh, over and over because she they do a couple of things. You know, they go back to the teeth and the the wire being cut a couple of times, uh, and then I guess the big payoff is that she's driving with a bloody mouth while she's crying or or screaming or something down the street. It's not funny. It's not effective. It's it just made me uh, uh, recoil. Which is like, was that what they were going for? Because if that's what they were going for, they should have done it much earlier in the movie. Just establish that this is the kind of movie where we're gonna attack your senses in this visceral way. Do you have braces, Julio? Yeah. So you can. I had braces for a year or some shit. I don't remember much about it, but I remember the times I got something caught in it and it pulled them. And so, like watching this, I was like, oh god. It was like. Um, 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The dude's fingernails get peeled back. It's awful. Yeah, I guess listeners, just uh, let us know if we're overreacting to <laughs> to this this gag with the braces. <laughs> I guess since both Alex and I have a history with braces, I I just know it's 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 unpleasant. But I I also knowing myself, I know that I would even if I had never had braces, just the visual 
Oh, yeah. The gratuitous violence is just an unnecessary. If you've had braces, it adds a whole new wrinkle to it. Yeah. I understand what they're going for, right? If nothing else, something they've established from the very beginning is that the braces are a symbol of this sort of uh, section of society. Uh, the braces is one of the things that defines them. And so now this is her big moment where she's breaking away. So she's taking the braces off. All right. I understand that part. Uh, what I don't think that they understood they didn't grasp how powerful it is in a bad way, how strong that visual is to just see somebody pull that off and bleed and everything. It's just, again, it's not a Lars von Trier movie. You're supposed to be making me laugh, not not gag. So she pulls up to this kind of little house in the prairie type location and goes up and knocks on the door and a woman answers the door with multiple kids, a whole throng of children. And she just explains... I used to, I grew up in this house and uh, could I sit on the toilet? Cause that's where I used to think and I'm having a hard time. And this woman's just like, get the fuck out of here. And then she's like, if it's not too much to ask, can I have one of your children? She just shuts the door in her face and she ends up, I guess, kidnapping one of her kids. Yep. Uh, yeah, could you tell that, that that joke was coming? That, that she was going to ask her for one of the kids? It's the only constant this movie has. <laughs> and they still take their sweet time getting to it. An hour and 35 minutes, in fact. She kidnaps this kid, takes the kid out for waffles. And while they're there, the TV comes on and they find out that uh, this woman that had run uh, Jill out of town was, in fact, the the killer, uh, little Helen. So she's been arrested. Um, Lisa was the one who found her. So she gets the fame of being on television and on the news. Jill returns back with this child that she kidnapped and just tells the kid to start playing soccer with the other kids. Uh, the police don't exist in this movie. I was kind of hoping that that was going to be the conclusion is that the police pull up and like, I don't know, you don't have to shoot her, but you know, take her down and arrest her. And it, it basically the movie just smacked the pavement in terms of showing at least something as reality at the end of the movie. But of course not. The little girl just starts playing soccer with all the other kids Jill goes and sits down next to Lisa. Lisa says, well, you can have my other son, Bob. And she's like, no, I'm good. And then she stands up and she says, I got to get out of here. And doesn't the ref say offsides or out of bounds? Yeah. Well, this movie, this is where this is the last five minutes of the movie, I think. And it just goes through, I don't know, 50 different endings because you think that it's over. Just when she pulls the return of the king. (laughs) Yeah. It, it it really does, and then but then there's the reveal of uh, oh you know I moved into your house because I I realized that I really like your pool so now we're, we're living there, and there's this close up on Jill's face and you're like oh cut to black this is it oh no now she's going to for some reason realize that the the soccer field is also a graveyard right doesn't he say that like the, the kids oh, are always God yes. Yeah. What? Where'd that come from? How is that funny? It's just an excuse for more ominous music and and just more slow motion. But yeah, it just goes on and on. And honestly, I don't remember how it ends. I don't remember what the final, like, where did we arrive? Do you remember? Uh, She says, I need to get out of here. And the the soccer ref says, out of bounds. And so she sits back down and then the... There's like a tremble that builds to like almost a reverberating noise in the the soundtrack, and it's a slow close up on her face, and then it just boom cuts to the credits. And this movie isn't even worth my fucking Sugar Ray joke, so I'm not going to give it to it. <laughs> it's it's worth the Camille joke. Uh, Beck Bennett looks at the camera and goes, "Greener grass." <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that. Yes. <laughs> oh wow! I'm eager to get to real talk where we can just uh, stop 
trying to be funny about it. It's it's hard to be funny about an unfunny movie. I think it'll lend itself to an interesting discussion. Unlike Duplex, I'm not pissed like I am at Steve still for making us watch that movie. <laughs> this was definitely, it was it Patrick, you said, was a gentleman's name? Yes. Yeah. Nice try, Patrick, Patrick but uh, you have not taken Steve's uh, spot. Is... You have not dethroned Steve Williams no. and Contrarian's lore. Uh, <laughs> you definitely gave us something interesting to talk about, but man, that was a, a brutal viewing. So yeah, let's just go ahead and... I'm going to go pour myself a stiff drink before we move over to Real Talk. All right, let's go to Real Talk. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even notice. You have a new baby. Oh, yeah. Isn't she cute? We wanted to try something new. She's so cute. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa, do you want her? What? No, I, I couldn't. She's your baby. Oh, Lisa, you can have her. She's great. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Take her. She's yours now. Oh. like she wants you. Oh, we've just bonded. I've been her mom since she was born. She just has to get used to you. Of course. <laughs> All right. I am recording for Real Talk for Greener Grass. All right, Patrick, this one's for you, my man. Uh, enjoy it. I doubt we shall revisit this movie. Uh, and as his recommendation was similar to Steve's and just very uh, short Kurt, not Kurt. Kurt has a rude connotation to it. Very concise, just very to the point. Hey, you should do this movie. I think he said it was bad, but he said it was rated highly. Um, I, as I told Julio, I greatly prefer that to him going on some long, you know, soliloquy about how it's brilliant and has a lot to say. Because then I might have hurt his feelings. So <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, he has a similar sentiment to ours. And to y'all listening, and, you know, um, we're always taking uh, listener recommendations, and those on Patreon, it becomes part of your deal. You get to recommend an episode to us. Yeah, that's not uh, a recommendation. Right. On Patreon, it's an order. Yeah, I was about to say, you, you don't recommend. You you decide. You pull the trigger. <laughs> you demand. <laughs> and we oblige, damn it. So, Greener Grass, for me, had you heard of it before he recommended it? Oh, dude, no. <laughs> I had no yeah. idea. I didn't even know Same. if he was talking about a movie or a show or what. Uh, just to reiterate, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 26th of 2019 and got a very limited theater release on October 18th of 2019. A whole new world it was. Uh, a whole new world we were about to embark on, I should say. Uh, box office, I couldn't find a, a budget in my what research I was able to do on this and uh, box office is a little under 70000 I can't imagine the budget was too high on this. Uh, described as a dark comedy. And again, written, directed, and starring uh, Jocelyn uh, DeBoer and Dawn uh, Lube, Lube. And I apologize for mixing up their characters' names in the beginning, but they're interchangeable. It's, yeah, I Jill was about to say, it's not like it matters much. <laughs> both one syllable. 
the anti-comedy, I think, is the genre that people describe a lot of this as. I would assume these gals come from an in- improv troupe, and I know they do, excuse me, as who's accompanying them in the movie. Um, but this was, I, I guess, an experience. It's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I, uh, now that we're in real talk, I, I think I'm going to be nicer to this movie than you were. But uh, but we'll get there. I, I agree that it was it was it was certainly an experience, and I was not kidding in the beginning of the episode when I said that I definitely wouldn't have clicked play if somebody hadn't asked me to do it for the show, and I don't know that I would have finished it if if I didn't have to, and yet yeah I laughed so there's I that. laughed too. There was a couple points I did. I made sure to document laughing because with this type of comedy too, it look the things we're gonna say. There's people out there that probably think it's great. Uh, Sheila O'Malley, uh, who writes for RogerDeber.com, gave it three stars, and uh, I read as much of her review as I could handle just because it. <laughs> I don't know. I know it sounds really um, hypocritical for how pretentious I come across sometimes, but pretension in writing specifically when it comes to film reviews is I can only take so much of it. And it felt like she was trying to force intelligence out of this movie. You know, people that kind of, I mean, I might be guilty of that too. People that try to make points for movies that you don't really think the movie's trying to make for themselves. You it's, know what I mean, it's what we do in the first half of the show, Alex. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, not always. Sometimes we, we go with what they're actually trying to say. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So we'll get right into it. Uh, 81% though on Rotten Tomatoes. And you said there was a good amount of reviews? Yeah, over 60. I was I was surprised because usually this type of thing, I would think, you know, it did a festival run and it got just enough reviews to get a tomato meter score. But in this case, it seems mm-hmm. like it got... But it, at the same time, it makes sense because a Sundance premiere kind of gets you enough eyeballs, I guess, to to uh, to get a reaction that can be measured on Rotten Tomatoes. So I pulled three of the rotten ones, and then I have one more uh, fresh one, okay. just kind of like to set us off. Uh, but starting with Norman Wilner from Now Toronto, who says, Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Libby's indie is full of gifted comedy players, but doesn't have anything to say. And I know we talked about it in Concerts Corner, and I think I'm going to harp on it a lot more here in Real Talk. But to me, that's probably the the big barrier between me and this movie, or between me and the adoration for this movie, is that I, I feel that it's pretty shallow. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, Dennis Schwartz from Dennis Schwartz Movie Reviews says, It's a nutty satire on the suburban normal that should make us weary of filmmakers who have nothing to say. Yes, Dennis. We already covered that. Mm-hmm. And then Joey Magidson from AwardCircuit.com says, You don't have to like greener grass to appreciate what it attempts to do. At the same time, that doesn't mean it warrants a recommendation either. So Joey Magidson, pretty torn. I get it. I just don't recommend it. Which, uh, I don't even know that I would go that far. I, I would probably recommend it, but with a lot of uh, caveats. Uh, and then finally, a fresh one. Rosalie Kicks from Movie John says, in the vein of a Kids in the Hall episode set to a John Carpenter score with some David Lynch twin peakness on the side. It is a must-watch. And the funny thing is, I agree with everything she said, except for the must-watch part. 
<laughs> but I can I can sense the kids in the hall sensibilities. I I totally get the John Carpenter score and definitely the David Lynch influences. I mean, we joked about that in Contrarian's Corner. Uh, but I don't think it works together as well as as it did for her. It definitely didn't for me. Yeah, I would not really use many of those words to describe this movie. Um, kids in the Hall, the state. I had reference in the first portion. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Twin Peak isms and some Lynchian nature to it. Yeah, I was saying the, the I guess John Carpenter score. It did feel like the dude that did the scores for um, Good Time and Uncut Gems were in there. That intense synthetic music. Uh, the, the anti comedy is the way I referred to it. I don't know if that phrase is still even used anymore. Um, I remember that was kind of tossed around with a lot of the initial Tim and Eric shit and a lot of that stuff that found its way onto Adult Swim. I texted Julio when recording this. This movie was exactly to me what the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie was. It was just too much. Yeah. When this, as soon as you sent me that text, I was like, "Oh, nailed it. That's really what it is." That does not mean that things aren't funny in this and that there aren't some things about it that I can find positive merit about. This more so than Aqua Teen uh, because the the visuals and the cinematography and the wardrobe is all very good. That's something I can be very complimentary about. But it just – that style of comedy that that doesn't work for an hour and a half. It doesn't work for an entire movie when what you're going to be doing is just these – like non sequiturs with just a few bylines of ridiculousness mixed in the pinnacle of this style of comedy in the modern context is, uh, the, I guess you could almost call it a short film. Too many cooks, Julio, you familiar with oh, too many yeah. cooks? I mean, that was, that's that, a, sh- I would call it a short. It's like what? 15 minutes tops. Yeah. It's somewhere in there and it has so many of the jokes from this and so many things similar to it. And it is that what you would, made allusion to in the first portion about this movie of you just don't understand where it's going at any point that doesn't work with a feature length movie, but something like too many cooks that is yeah, 10, 15 minutes long, whatever it is, it's just long enough to keep your interest. And when it's over, you're like, that was fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> it's not something that like you just eventually become exhausted watching. And that is something that's always the way I describe the Aqua Teen movie was it's exhausting. And I should never ex- describe a comedy as exhausting, but that's just what it is. You don't understand where it's going. And there will be people, there are people that will try to say that that's brilliant. That's brilliant filmmaking, but just from, a classical sense and a logical sense, a full length motion picture is not meant to have you wondering every second where it's going to go. There are Lynchian movies and M. Night Shyamalan with his twists and turns. And, you know, even guys like Nolan where you're like, Hmm, I wonder how this is going to pay off, but you should have a general sense where you're going. You don't even need to be comfortable. You can be uncomfortable, but you still have like a general idea of this roller coaster that you're on. And in this, it there's just none of that. I keep using the phrase adult swim because that really has become the, uh, I guess, mecca of this style of comedy over the past 15 years. So I know that's not literally describing a brand of comedy, but that's what I kind of associate it with. And yeah, the idea of too many cooks is basically everything good about this style of comedy uh, executed perfectly. As you mentioned in the first portion, Lynch is such a incredible filmmaker that he's able to take these 
some of these ideas and tones and very similar aspects to this movie, but he's such an artist. He can orchestrate it in a way that is just absolutely hypnotic and mesmerizing. And then what I kind of came in with the, the David Wayne side of it, I have talked about repeatedly on this podcast, Wet Hot American Summer and how it's the movie and the shows are some of my favorite comedic offerings of my lifetime. That is still absurd and ridiculous, but with a restrained aspect to it. The movie, for example, there's a clear story to that movie. Mm -hmm. It happens to have all these absolutely ludicrous and preposterous things throughout it that are there to advance the story in certain aspects and even things that are just stupid, just complete like sidebars to make you laugh. And even like weird things like that part in the movie where they get back from town and they all run and just stand face like face up against a wall. And it's just like in the background, you don't know why they're doing it. So I guess the, the both sides of it, there are extremes to it. And that was kind of the joke we were talking about in the first portion, but there has to be some semblance of restraint and some, just whiff of organization and that's not here. And again, that there's still a market this appeals to, but, and and not even for the masses. It's just, that's not a movie this disjointed with no clear vision. And I know the argument would be, that is the clear vision. Mm -hmm. You can only go so far with it. I think we're, uh, we're revealing in this episode, if it hasn't happened before, just how much of a, a traditionalists we are when it comes to what we want from our feature films. <laughs> we want the story, <laughs> damn it. And, and even more so than that, I think that what I wanted was some sort of a statement. Like, tell me why I watched this for an hour and 40 minutes. Yes, I watched it to laugh, but I usually like it to add up to something especially when you're doing this under the guise of satire when you when it's very clear that you're taking pot shots at a very specific type of people a very specific type of community a very specific type of lifestyle but you're not telling me anything new so i was hoping that there would be something at the end that tied it all together and would tell me why yeah tell me something beyond like well isn't it funny how shallow and how uh, oblivious you know, rich people are or or well-to-do people are, how materialistic they are. I mean, this is stuff that is not new. And that's fine. I mean, I can find it funny, which I did a lot of the time. But, you know, I picked those quotes because they said something that was running through my mind, which is this movie has nothing to say. It's funny. It has a sense of humor. But it's not even even when you're when you're watching a stand-up comedian, which is something that I kept thinking about here. Because, you know, when you're watching a stand-up set, that's usually you don't have a story. It's just a series of funny things that he's telling you, funny scenarios that he's painting for you or whatever. But even then, like with the really good ones, when it's all said and done, you walk away from them with a very clear point of view, a very clear sense of what that comedian was was saying, what how they felt about the things that they were saying. And here it felt very surface level. It felt like the point of view of the filmmakers was as superficial as the people that they were uh, criticizing, that they were making fun of in the movie. And so that was not satisfying because I could probably look past the uh, the lack of a story if it arrived somewhere stronger. I mean, uh, I know it was it was a, a patron segment we didn't cover it on the main show, but uh, I, just to talk about it, compare it briefly, there's that show, the Sarah Cooper 
comedy special uh, Netflix. And whether you find it funny or not, that show, you walk away from it going like, all right, well, it had something to say about 2020. <laughs> and... I walk away from greener grass. I'm like, I laughed, but I didn't really get anything else. And in a way, it's I can say that if it was if it was heavier, if it had more substance, I could look past the lack of story. But unfortunately, I think that what happens is that the lack of story is what causes it to not have substance because you don't you're not building up towards any sort of statement. You're just you're just being funny. You're just watching these people be funny for. 90 minutes for 100 minutes and it's like all right well well you mentioned the length too and the lack of story makes that runtime feel longer than some of the long movies yes. that we've done any i think that most of the sequences in this movie would be funnier and would be more effective actually it would feel like they carry more weight if they were just standalones but when you put them all together <laughs> it's the it's the opposite of a cumulative effect they actually take away from each other just for from being together you know playing one after the other which is a shame because Again, I laughed. I, I, even after I figure out that this movie was not really was probably not going to do it for me, I was still occasionally laughing. Uh, and it's not just the pool stuff, which uh, that was not a bit in Gutierrez Corner. I, I, I felt it oh, was that shit's hilarious, really funny. Uh, and I found uh, the stuff with the dog was really funny. Not the kids, but the dog. Once the kid becomes a dog, I, I thought that was. That was great. Mm-hmm. Just the, the casual jokes about, you know, when she brings a dog into the classroom and she just goes, uh, I'm sorry, I'm here with Julian. He's a dog now. And then the teacher goes, well, he's tardy. <laughs> yeah. And the girl, the little girl tries to pet it, the dog and she's like, you can play with Julian at recess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those things I, I, I think are funny. Uh, it, and there's a lot of them. I, I did laugh. At the opening, I thought it was I thought it was a bold opening, which which promised a, a stronger movie. I guess I was like, if they can keep this yeah. up, uh, from the switching the babies and then switching, uh, I'm sorry, giving away the baby and then switching the husbands, that was funny. They peeked on the phone. <laughs> yep, that was it. That was it. Uh, I don't know, man. There might be a way of making this sort of thing work, but. I, I couldn't tell you what the formula is beyond telling you, well, it just needed more substance. Uh, I think the the approach to making something like this with this kind of um, – this set of skills and this type of cast and this type of writing would be what uh, movie 43. Now, I'm not saying that's uh, – I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's a good example. It's just the first one that comes to mind of a movie that's just – you know, Pulp Fiction, I, I mentioned, is like a, se- a sequence of scenes that kind of tie together. Movie 43 is literally just series of short films smacked into each other. And I again, don't crucify me. I know there's other movies like that. That's just the first one that came to mind. Um, because there are some ideas in this movie that are funny, but it just, again, the set of skills it takes to be a good improv comedian does not equate to that of a good filmmaker, just like an amazing stand-up comedian doesn't equate to being a great filmmaker. Uh, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just if you want to incorporate and use these ideas that are in this movie, honestly, the only the, the pool thing is the only thing that stayed strong throughout the entire movie. Everything else got really played out. And for lack of a better euphemism, they just went back to the well for certain things way too often. And when you have a, a movie that's an hour and 40 minutes that you just are begging for it to end just because of how much it's dragging everything out, I mean, that's that's a bad sign. Um, maybe in a 
previous life when networks had more power and you could premiere, you know, specials on them, you got like an hour time slot on a TV. So really it boils down to about 45 minutes. Maybe you could have gotten something really funny out of this, but this style with these actors and this type of writing is way, way, way more suited for shorter threads, not feature length motion pictures. Yep. Uh, but I can see what you said that, that for some people, the absurdity would be enough of a point that that's what would make this brilliant, and I, I I can totally see that. It's just definitely not my cup of tea. Yeah, I guess I, I like you. I prefer it in smaller bursts. That's where I guess my pretension would probably kick in. I would just say like, okay, watch Wet Hot American Summer, watch Hot Rod, watch you know something, fucking any of the Naked Gun movies. Just these movies that have a very thin story, but it's still there and it exists just for all these really dumb jokes. Um, the goods. That's one that comes to mind there. What you're describing movies that are absurd are out there that still have what I believe to be the requirements to make a traditional movie. And that's, that's the whole point. That's just where my take would come in with it. Um, that's, I mean, yeah, this shit that we're watching here, that's why Aqua Teen Hunger Force episodes are 15 minutes long. That's why Robot Chicken and things like that on Adult Swim were the length they were. They're they're not meant to be like this. They're meant to just be digested like, uh, like a bowl of cereal. I made that joke earlier about mixing things. And I, I think when it comes to this, if I was speaking with, you know, Beck Bennett or uh, Jocelyn, uh, DeBoer or anyone that made this movie, I think I just wouldn't be able to get out of my own way because I think I have my mind made up that this type of stuff isn't supposed to be a movie. So you're not going to sway me one way or the other. I can be complimentary of things in it, but that's this is just an example of my hard-headedness coming in the way. The conversation would end with Beck Bennett punching you in the face. I'd be like, dude, <laughs> I told you you were the funniest part of the movie. <laughs> would, would you say that... That's that's the case. Would you say Beck Bennett is the MVP? Uh, the guy who plays Dennis, Neil Casey, is funny, but honestly, by design, he's not really given much to do. Yeah. Um, I will say he had something that what it felt very state esque. Kids in the Hall, whatever reference you want to make for the modern era. In the scene after the music recital. Where the the mom, uh, Lisa, is telling her son, you know, music's not for everybody. They're in the, the bedroom and Dennis is in the background taking change out of yep. his pocket and putting it into his change cup. And it's just handfuls after handfuls <laughs> of change in his pocket. And it's making the noise of the change rattling. That that There were things like that throughout the movie that would break it up. And to the point where I can't say, like, I was miserable at the end of this. But it was... There was enough in there like that that kind of added levity to it. But, yeah, Beck Bennett, I've talked to people that don't find him really particularly funny on Saturday Night Live. I think he's his mannerisms and everything really tickle me. Um, the part in this that it, it felt kind of Apatow-esque. Um, uh, no, 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 not Apatow. Uh, Broken Lizard, that's who I'm thinking of. When they're at the um, soccer match and... She puts the ball under her stomach or under her dress, and that's when the official comes up and is like, the dog can't play. He can't figure it right. out. 
And and then Dennis like mocks him. He like says, "Oh, he can't figure it out." He does like a mocking tone, and they all start laughing really hard. And Beck Bennett reaches over and shakes his hand for telling the joke. That that was something that I don't know why. I guess I was just grasping at straws at that point, but that made me laugh really hard. Um, I think I agree that Beck Bennett is probably the most. They give him the funniest bits. I think because you're right. Uh, the guy that plays Dennis, uh, Neil Casey, he. He's like in the background most of the time. Out of out of the four of the quartet of protagonists, he's the one that gets the least to do. But I will go ahead and give props to uh, I had to look her up. Uh, Jocelyn DeBoer, like one of the directors. That's so she plays Jill, which I guess is officially the the main character because she's the ones that goes through the arc. Uh, because I found her even when she wasn't making me laugh out loud, uh, and she did sometimes. I've, I I felt that she did a lot with a character that's kind of uh, very passive, which is really tricky because usually if you have a character that's like hers, right? She's just constantly kind of only reacting to things and doesn't really do much. All the other characters are, are taking actions around her. But she, there was something about her delivery that I, I, I thought was really good, like performance-wise, where she was constantly, the way that she spoke to the people in the community was where she was never sure about what she was saying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She was, she she could never tell if if she was supposed to be enthusiastic about something or or if she was, she should be sad. I'm thinking when she first shows up to visit the woman that got divorced, and she's trying to read her. She can't tell if the woman is mad at her, and and then she can't tell if if she should be expressing sorrow for the divorce or if she should be celebrating the divorce because it looks like the woman's pretty happy and just. How she deliver her lines, it, that's that's one of the most obvious examples, but I think she does it throughout the movie. So I I actually liked her a lot, it's, it's, and I was glad that she was kind of the, the one that we followed the most. I I think the movie kind of goes off the rails towards the end, and it doesn't help her. Because once you yeah. have her just go completely into crazy places where she takes the braces off and kidnaps the kid. And I know that Oof. the movie is already established that basically anything goes and everything is crazy. But I think that the uh, they just took away from the the best part of her performance, which was the subtleness of it. And instead, now it's just really big and broad. And now my mouth is bleeding and I'm kidnapping a child. And But it's still, most of the movie, I, I really like her performance. So, yeah, it's clearly, and you know, I'm not calling out every single other person in the cast, but I could. It's not a matter of, of lack of talent. I do wonder, though, if in our specific case, you and me, it's also a matter of us not being the biggest fans of improv. I wonder if, if you're an improv aficionado, not, not necessarily that you do improv, but that you, you're just all in in the culture and you go to improv shows regularly, uh, Maybe if that would help you enjoy that movie more because you are more familiar, you're more used to the rhythms of the the stop and start and the, you know, maybe even when you don't find something funny or particularly revealing, you can still maybe be in awe of the craft of the the fact that, wow, they're they're making this happen. They They started with nothing and they're kind of creating this really absurd scenario and they're keeping it going. That's something that personally doesn't really appeal to me. But I imagine yeah. if you're into improv, that's something that's that's your jam. And then now you watch an hour and 40 minutes of, of talented comedians doing it. So that might be something else uh, to consider. Yeah. 
And like I said, exactly, not from lack of talent. Like I said, I like Lauren Adams. I, I wish I could see her in more things. And that's based just off this and uh, Kimmy Schmidt because, I mean, she doesn't have the biggest filmography to speak of. Um, not everything is for everyone. Everything is for someone, but it's not for everyone. And I don't think Julio and I were the target market here. Um, and we may be kind of brutal in our review, but – it's because it's our podcast, and in this particular case, our friend Patrick asked us what we thought about it. So, uh, giving it to you, calling it like we seize it. And <laughs> I was talking about it in Contrarian's Corner. The payoff of Beck Bennett swimming in the pool, just taking big gulps of it, that that was hilarious. That That is the type of absurd comedy that like really works for me, that Wayne's World 2 just stupid shit that... Isn't, doesn't have to be necessarily over-explained or what have you. Uh, elsewhere... The you know the way it was shot and the presentation of it all, uh, I thought was solid. At no point did I did it feel like a B level production. It felt like a well made movie, um, just not when it came to the story or dialogue. Yeah, I think in Andreas Corner, uh, you stumbled upon a much more interesting movie, which was the the movie about Beck Bennett coming to terms with the fact that he likes the dog more than he liked his kid. That to me is is that's a feature film idea <laughs> that you develop into. It's still absurd, but you could just take that and run and patent pending. Yes, <laughs> let's register with the WGA. Uh, but yeah, you could take that that idea and run with it, and and I think that you st- you would stand a chance of not running out of steam before mm-hmm. the the ninety minute mark if you know you threw more things in it. But but the whole thing. You know what? Because because then you're really saying something. That that bit, dude. I I know. I'm, I'm now. I'm just gonna fall in the trap of praising my co-host. But really, to me, that insight of uh, some people have kids when really what they really wanted was to have a pet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a statement that you could make in a movie. You know, a ninety minute movie, and just explore it with that scenario of, uh, you know, <laughs> I had my kid, then he turned to a dog, and suddenly I like my kid a lot more. That's great. Uh, I really wish that they they would have gone more in that in that sense. I'm not saying that specific storyline, but that kind of storytelling. Them like dressing the dog up like the kid. That I mean, that shit's funny too. I think to me, the movie's biggest failing isn't that you know I I don't really think it's executed well comedically or even you know thematically. I just I can't figure out what it's trying to say other than it's just being very cynical and. Obviously, cynicism runs amok here on The Contrarians a lot of times, be it in a facetious manner. Um, but we've watched a lot of movies that we've talked about in Real Talk that we felt were coming from a really cynical place. No holds barred. Vince McMahon hates women. You know, things like that. And <laughs> this, yeah, I, I believe that a lot of people in uh, higher income suburbs are unhappy with their life. And especially in smaller towns, having lived in small town Texas and Jesus, small town Ohio, I can tell you they're constantly competing to show um, who's got the bigger dick or, you know, who's got the smarter kid or, you know, who makes more money and that type of shit. I know that exists. I have never once in my life felt the need to make a feature length movie, you know, castigating these people or showing them as, you know, the scourge of the earth type thing. So from that perspective, when I do try to figure out what this movie's saying, it just feels 
overly cynical. And it's maybe something I would have appreciated uh, back in like college in my early 20s when I I didn't realize that you should have only so much cynicism in your world because trust me, the real world's depressing enough as it is. You don't need to consistently watch things like this that cut it down even more. Like yeah, the whole the whole thing about the braces was it was to parody how middle-aged suburban parents are obsessed with appearing youthful. Mm-hmm. The f- the fuck does that do to me? That that's <laughs> that is no skin off my ass. I, I don't I don't care. <laughs> I smoke cigarettes and drink beer. To quote Dale Gribble, I'm taking the opposite approach. Thank you very much. And if someone you know, <clears throat> there are plenty of people that. I male, female, what have you, you know, we've discussed it that I've have seen get worked on. I'm like, man, they shouldn't have done that. They looked good beforehand or, you know, why would they do that? At the end of the day, it doesn't affect me. I don't care enough to make a, a movie about it. And this, yeah, like I said, I've seen this shit with my own two eyes. I have lived it uh, through my family and, you know, my uh, relatives and shit. I, I don't care enough to not only make a movie about it. I don't really want to watch a movie about it unless you're going to say something more than, ha ha, look at these people. What the, look at these dumb fucks. I think so. I think that's, that's another important thing to note, I, I guess, in a way that we both experienced the movie because I, I, I had the same reaction and it's that, uh, it would have made a big difference if I had felt that the movie had some sort of sympathy uh, a, a bit of compassion towards at least one of the characters. Of course, I understand that's not at all what they're interested in, but that yeah. would change everything because you're right. We know that these these are, I mean, these are old punchlines. This is not news for anybody unless you really are not familiar at all with that side of America or you haven't seen any of the movies that constantly point that out, but where you have a chance to really make something special is when you, okay, you've set up this nightmarish world that this woman is living in now not to be corny but give it a little heart right make me make me care not don't just make me laugh but make me care a little bit have her arrive at some sort of realization i mean what's what's her realization at the end that she that she needs to take the braces off because this world is not working for her but then she goes and kidnaps a kid i mean it's just it doesn't make sense i never felt that i had an emotional connection with anybody there which of course affects how i end up experiencing the movie and i'm not saying that you have to fuck you should never uh, fall into the other trap. The the two main traps are like uh, praising your co-host, and the second one is believing that a movie is bad <laughs> if it doesn't have sympathetic characters. But a movie is certainly interesting when it paints characters in a negative way, and then it finds a way to make you sympathize with them or empathize with them. And that's not what this movie does. This movie is just 90 minutes of pointing at them and laughing at them and telling you how stupid they are. But that's it. It goes a long way. You know, you say, you know, yeah, some movies are worth watching when they don't have sympathy for their main characters. Uh, you know, Good Time, as I reference all the time. <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> good Time all the time. The Alex Mattis story. <laughs> Goddamn right. I told someone the other day I have not seen a movie as good as that since it came out, and I truly believe that. So it's, it's still in the running. What I was going to say, you know, going back to what I said earlier, that movie is one of those that... It's just a, a pressure cooker. It's a perpetu- It's a machine of perpetual motion. You know, the, the fucking wheel that just keeps spinning fast, faster and faster, faster, faster. And yeah, you don't always know where it's going, but you have this thread here. And also in that, there are no sympathetic characters to what you're saying. So it's achievable what we're talking about. And I know the Safdie brothers aren't for everyone, so I'll take it back to 
Uh, Lewin Davis, there's really no sympathetic characters in that movie, but that movie fucking rules. So, and because it says something. And, you know, that's... Um, I think you still get a talk- window into their humanity, even if they're not... Even if you don't like him, or you, you don't like them as people, but you understand them in a way that, uh, you, you know, it's like, I would not want to spend time with Lewin Davis, but I can, I understand where he's coming from. I can understand his frustrations, even if I don't share them. They're, they're, oh, the, yeah, the yeah. movie does enough to show you that. And that's really the closest it comes. And I know I keep coming back to it. And that's because to me, it was just this eye-opening moment as soon as you said it. But the the idea that Beck Bennett suddenly finds happiness in his son's transformation into a dog, to me, that is that is relatable in a way. That's human, right? That's that's a very uh, human moment that, of course, the movie doesn't capitalize on because that's not what they're interested in. But that's that's really what what's needed. Yeah, and I, I always forget that we haven't done Lewin Davis because you and I have talked about that movie so much uh, over the years. Um, yeah, to put a pin on or to put a, put a bow on Lewin Davis, yes. You, you know why he is, but that doesn't mean they're sympathetic. The The point I was trying to make is you can make a good movie without having sympathetic characters. The examples I gave there, and there's uh, literal hundreds more, thousands. But it definitely helps if you give us a reason to be sympathetic towards your main character, if you explain you know the situation and why they are the way they are. Uh, Town is something that we go back to quite often here on the podcast and is a movie that you know some people would argue the writing is really weak in uh but it tells a story of why someone is the way they are something that happens in their life and then what they're going to do to make that better it's something you can understand and go with um brothers is another example because brothers could have just been a movie that like toby Maguire goes insane and that's the end of the movie but it shows like <laughs> this is why he's insane this is you know the problem and now we got to address this problem and things like that where yeah this movie just it to your point, as you said, it has no interest in doing it, but that that I'm telling you, the listeners, and I'm telling you, Julio, that's why I don't really care about it. It To me, it comes across as nothing more than just, obviously not jealousy, but just it comes from a place of wanting to cut others down. And again, when I was younger, I might have really gotten off on that and enjoyed it, but here... There's not enough in it that's trying to actually accomplish anything or say anything for me to look past that. I'm wondering now if if the trappings of improv make that type of storytelling lean that way. Because if you're thinking on your feet and constantly just making it up as you go along, and I know this movie, obviously, I'm sure it had had a script. It's not like they actually improvised the entire thing. Uh, as they were shooting but still I think that those sensibilities lean that way where it's harder to achieve uh, a sort of emotional climax emotional revelation when you're just making it up as you go along because those sort of things usually require very careful uh, structuring you know you have to build to that big character moment that that touches you right it's like I can't think of the top of my head and of course it's not my my field but I can't think of a movie that's that has the improv sensibilities and yet arrives at that sort of a uh, emotional truth that we we seem to be demanding from green grass greener grass <laughs> uh yeah because th- it's hard to the purveyors and achievers in that line of comedy are the ones that are more 
tightly crafted and tightly scripted that come to a, some type of moment of, like you said, emotional realization. The Big Sick is a movie that really feels like a good chunk of the dialogue was improvised, but the story is crafted tightly enough that there's still these emotion uh, moments of um, emotional resonance. And I guess that's the point that you made 40 minutes ago or whenever we started this half of the podcast. It's just showing that we're traditionalists and (laughs) (laughs) for better or worse, we believe movies are supposed to be a certain way. And this goes outside of our realm. Fortunately, we're not closed off to the idea of this. It's just when you ask, uh, I'm not going to speak for you specifically, but when you ask my opinion on it, I'll tell you that's, that's, that's what I take away from it. But, uh, while I'm never going to watch this again, it's not going to, uh, inhibit my ability to consider watching something from these filmmakers again. That's exactly what I was going to say. I I laughed enough and I was entertained enough that even when I knew that it wasn't going to work for me, I was still like, ah, well, I wonder what they'll do next. And I'll go even a step further. I am curious about the short that originated this this movie, mainly because I wonder if it's just the opening. Because to me, the opening is still the best part. And I could see how if the short was one of those where you think it's peaking when they when she gives away the baby and then it turns you over again when uh, when they swap husbands. That is a perfect, like, what, 10 minutes tops? And then they went, well, what if we added 90 more minutes to this? <laughs> Sounds like a challenge, yeah. guys. Let's go. <laughs> challenge accepted. Yeah, it's uh, the beginning of it. Like, I, not on air, before we recorded. Garfunkel and Oates, uh, I, I find them very funny and what they do and the show they had. Uh, I found to be pretty damn funny. Uh, and their YouTube videos are pretty similar to what you're explaining. And the Kyle and Beck Bennett videos they had online uh, that they were doing before SNL. Exactly what you said. The opening of this movie feels like it should be just this comedy troops, some video they made and produced and put online. Because what exactly what you said, what follows just kind of takes away any goodwill that was potentially proffered by that. It's, um, it is what it is. And now that I have this, uh, in the proverbial ether, as far as my movie knowledge, I will, uh, know who Jocelyn and Don are. And maybe one day we'll circle back here on the podcast. If something they do in the future ever drops and you and I see it, Patrick is going to send us a message. It's like, guys, the new one is out. <laughs> Green as grass. <laughs> He's got his alerts set. <laughs> Uh, well, what's what's your score? Uh, man, I came in ready to say F. I don't know if I can do that, though. Some of the things we've talked about. And it has the memorable quality of the braces scene where, yeah, that was so out of nowhere. Like, the way that was shot and everything with the close-ups of her putting the fucking needle nose pliers on her braces and ripping them off. That was brutal. So because of that, the movie has a memorable quality to it. The pool water shit is funny. And um, that's about as far as I'll go. Memorable opening. So I'll give it a a D. mm, We'll say a D minus. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go. So a 69. That's what I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with with two and a half. I honestly, when it was over, I was like, eh, three stars. You know, I laughed. I, I, I didn't, I didn't hate it. You know, I didn't have a bad time. But then, 
the more I thought about it, and especially this discussion, it feels like the discussion made you a little more positive toward the movie, and it made me a little more negative because the more we talked about the <laughs> the the missed opportunities, uh, which were right there, you know, it, it just it kind of bummed me out more. Just that there were some some paths that the the filmmakers decided not to take, uh, but still a laugh. So yeah, two and a half, and uh, like we said, I would watch something else from them the next thing they do. Maybe whether it's another movie or just shorter stuff, you know. I guess Quibbly doesn't doesn't exist anymore, but it seems like it's the kind of platform that would have been perfect for this sort of stuff. Absurd videos that are like five minutes long. Yes. And if you just want like to dabble in this genre of comedy and just kind of see what the, the peak of it is, just go on YouTube and watch Too Many Cooks. It's gonna save you a lot of time. <laughs> and that's that's the best example of what this generation of comedy uh was about and could be so that was greener grass patrick thank you this led itself to actually a much more interesting discussion than i was planning i was watching this movie and i was like fuck uh, this this is extremely hard to do for our uh podcast just basically the type of movie that it is because there's really not much to cling to that you can be facetious about but we got through it and the real talk portion of this actually like i said lended itself to some pretty fascinating discussion so patrick hope you enjoyed it thank you for that yeah that's uh, uh i forgot i was gonna open real talk with that and then we got into other stuff but it this felt almost contrarian's proof because when a movie doesn't take anything seriously then it's really hard to make fun of it yeah yeah, there's a reason we've never done the movies I had mentioned earlier. There's a reason we've never done like Anchorman or some shit like that. Um, but it's uh, proved that we can do it. So that was kind of a morale booster, if nothing else. It just takes more work. It does. It was. It was. We were way more, uh, way more meticulous with our discussion and had to, you know, really hone in on certain things. But that was uh, a bonus episode so next on deck is 121 is that correct yes 121 we're going to a, a major blind spot for you Alex uh, our friend David from the franchise killer podcast is coming over he's gonna do goodwill hunting with us how on earth have you not watched goodwill hunting Alex not to not to film shame you but that's I know you like Robin Williams. Uh, my answer I can give is that movie is from 98, 99. Is that right? Uh, um, yes. 98, I think. So there was a window of movies right before I would have been 11. Yeah. 11. So the late nineties R rated movies were in this window of time where I wasn't Yet seeing R-rated movies, as has been documented on The Contrarians, uh, Ranger Games was the first R-rated movie <laughs> my dad took me to see in the theater when I was 13. And that never really – by the time they were circulating on network television, I didn't really care about them. Because, you know, obviously I have all that experience with those horror movies and, you know, Terminator and all those movies from the late 80s and early 90s that would circulate on cable television when I was a little kid. So it's this blind spot that exists because they were just at the wrong time in my life. That being said, I understand it's no excuse that I haven't seen Goodwill Hunting because I don't even know by this point I'm fucking 33. I don't know how I haven't even seen it on accident because you know it's it's what made Ben and Matt exactly much, right Oscar winners. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, but the, the Damon comes back after taking a, a one episode uh, of rest. 
comes back with a vengeance. So I can tell you why I've never seen it. Because it was destiny that I would watch it for this podcast. There you go. There you go. And uh, not to give too much away, but uh, I think the reason that David uh, wanted to do it when when we're talking about him guesting on the show uh, is because he said it's one of his favorite movies. I haven't seen it in forever. So uh, it's going to be pretty funny. If he loves it, you hate it, and I'm in the middle. It's got to be Scream 4 all over again. (laughs) Yes, that... Uh, I'm not sure that his, the discussion will get as passionate as Eddie bashing Scream 4, but it'll be a good time. <laughs> All right. So that concludes this episode. Goodwill Hunting on deck. Uh, as far as moving into plugs, Julio, for our Patreon subscribers, what are what are we going to be talking about today? Patreon subscribers. Uh, Alex has been super busy, so he has no plugs. But I have two plugs. So there's still going to be extended plugs uh, for this episode. Uh, I read this book. I don't know if I mentioned Alex, and we'll go in depth into it, uh, I guess, when we do the the patron segment. But uh, my wife is part of two book clubs. And most of the time, they're books that I, they're not the kind of books that I'm interested in. But she had a Neil Gaiman book assigned a couple of weeks ago. It's a book of short stories called uh, M is for Magic. I love Neil Gaiman. I don't know if I've ever been vocal about it on the show, but it's he's one of my favorite writers. He might be my favorite writer, actually. Uh, and this is a collection of short stories. Uh, his short stories are usually really good. I mean, everything he writes is really good, but uh, they're pretty punchy. They're pretty emotional. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit about that. And then also I watched this uh, HBO miniseries called Mosaic from a couple of years ago. Uh, it's written by Ed Solomon, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It stars Sharon Stone, which I hadn't seen in anything where she'd blow me away since probably Casino. And she is mm-hmm. so good in this show. And and a bunch of other people that are also really good. We'll, we'll talk about that also for the patrons, along with whatever we end up cutting out of this episode, uh, out of the final cut. That will also be there for patrons uh, in case, you know, if we deem it uh, entertaining. And then some other stuff like your notes. Did you remember to do your notes, uh, like handwriting, handwriting your notes, or did you type them again? I typed them again. I forgot about that. Just text me next time, and I'll make sure to handwrite them and draw a lot of penises on the side. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not, just send me that picture uh, of your notes, not of penises. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, patreoncom slash Prime if you want to join the our, our little Patreon family. Uh, you get a lot of uh, cool stuff. And then, of course, our uh, perennial plugs, starting with the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Rothgieser, he's the man behind our logo and all the other graphics that you'll see on our website, on our Patreon, uh, on our upcoming merch busy man hands on top of being an artist he's also a podcaster and he's a novelist the latest release of his is called Zomo Zombies it's a collection of short stories each written by a different Peruvian author each taking place in a different Peruvian region uh, but yeah check out all his work at mildemonios.pe that's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S uh, you can also contact him on Twitter at mildemonios email him mildemonios at hotmail.com you can check his uh Podcasts, Nación Combi, Contando Disonante, Marginal, Living in Peru. The first three are in Spanish, the last one is in English. They're all about Peruvian current affairs, economy, and 
emigration to Peru. He covers every base. And lastly, Ms. Zoe Perez for helping us out with our social media game, uh, specifically our Instagram accounts, providing, I think they're called stories on Instagram because fucking Twitter introduced fleets. But uh, I've seen you. Zoe, I've seen you fleeting. Oh, yeah, that's my fleets are just random pictures from my Twitter folder. So Zoe helps us out with Instagram, makes a lot of pretty posts for us, interactive posts for you, the people, which is what it's all about. So Zoe, as always, much appreciated. And that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Okay.